Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. It's my pleasure to introduce Mary Ann Shields. Mary Ann, in her own words, states, I feel as if I'm being led to discuss how God blessed me by choosing me out of all the six-year-olds in the world to live in a wheelchair. The daily sufferings have provided enormous graces, and I would like to share some of the ways that the suffering has led to great blessings. Mary Ann Shields, also known professionally as Mary Ann Schulte, is a nationally recognized executive, accounting consultant, and humanitarian. Her work has been recognized by listings in Who's Who of American Women and Who's Who in Finance. She has earned a Master of Business Administration degree in Executive Management and a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration with an emphasis in accounting from USC. She is the recipient of many awards for her varied service to business, community, and church. She thoroughly delights in her status as wife to Denny Shields. As a couple, Mary Ann and Denny have been involved as facilitators for the Ignatian Exercises. Once again, it is my privilege to introduce Mary Ann Shields. I discern that I'd like to share with you today those prayerful discoveries about my own suffering and, and faith, the hope and the grace that our Lord has blessed me with. He graciously led me at Mass one morning to a passage from 1 Peter. It's, um, it says, Although for a little while... You may have to suffer through various trials, so that his, the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that is perishable, even though tested by fire, may prove to be for the praise, glory, honor uh, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In order for you to understand who I am and what molded that character that Father Joe talks about, you have to know a little bit about my parents. I really would like to just tell you briefly, my parents are the most remarkable people. My folks are both ordinary and, and extraordinary, I would have to say. My dad was born in the city in Detroit, definitely a city boy. Ended up being the only one of the children in his family to go to, to college. He was born of a German family. Uh, when the Second World War broke out, my father was very adamant about wanting to serve his country. He joined the Army Air Corps. He wanted to be a paratrooper. Uh, ended up being a navigator on B-17s, and he flew um, 11 missions out of an American air base um, in Bury St. Edmunds, England. And his, his mission on uh, October 6th of 1944, 45, he was actually, his plane along with a number of other aircraft were shot down over Berlin. He was captured and spent the next seven months as a prisoner of war in a German prison camp up on the north, on the Baltic. Uh, seven months later, the Russians marched in to liberate him and the other military people that were there. Unfortunately, he was in the hospital. He had succumbed to a severe pneumonia, was quite ill. So they flew him back to the U.S., and he ultimately ended up at Pittsimmons General Hospital in Denver, Colorado, where he was operated on and removed a part of his lung. My mom was born and raised in, uh, on a small farm in south- southwestern Missouri. Farming family, never really experienced uh, any wealth, um, worked really, really hard. My mom decided she wanted to become a nurse. 
Uh, her parents were not very excited about that because time nursing was not something that was, uh, they felt was appropriate for their daughter in particular. Nonetheless, she moved to Kansas City, studied nursing, and she too decided she wanted to join the Army as an Army, uh, as an army nurse and was stationed. Her first uh, assignment was Fitzsimmons General Hospital in Denver, Colorado as an operating room nurse. Um, she met a handsome young a lieutenant in the officers club one night and my father and mother were married a few months later. That was 62 years ago and they are still um, inseparable and still deeply in love with one another. Um, they both ended up separating from the military and moved to California. My brother was born, um, and then in 1953, I was born. I'll save you the math, I'm 55. <laughs> My early years were wonderful. I was a, just enjoyed everything there was to, to enjoy about life. I loved pestering my older brother. He was great fun to bother. Um, roller skated, bicycled, wanted to be a ballet dancer when I grew up. According to my mother, I talked incessantly. As I started kindergarten, um, I also started having severe back pain. It was very debilitating, but it kind of came and went. So didn't think too much of it. And I, of course, did not want to miss school. That couldn't, that couldn't be. But ultimately, one day, I was uh, playing at a little friend's house. And the pain just suddenly appeared. It was just excruciating. I kind of crumbled on the ground. And my mom came to get me, took me to the pediatrician who was not experienced. I wasn't experiencing the pain at the time of the pediatrician. The pediatrician just said, you know, I think your daughter's a little overindulged. Why don't you just take her home and see what happens? And lo and behold, that night, um, I became completely paralyzed. I couldn't, couldn't move. And um, oddly recovered, uh, came back, uh, was able to walk again. But my folks didn't, weren't comfortable with that. So they took me to um, UCLA and Loma Linda Universities for testing, spinal taps, the whole nine yards. And the early tests were very benign. There was nothing that they could discover. So I'm waiting in the bed uh, for them to take me home. And all of a sudden, I couldn't. I started a tingling at the top of my head that went down to the bottom of my toes. And all of a sudden, I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak, and I just couldn't feel anything. And I watched my folks come back into the room. I'll never forget the look on their face. The absolute terrified look that there was their daughter suddenly couldn't talk and remember being a chatterer, couldn't feel anything, couldn't move. Needless to say, I stayed in the hospital and was there in and out of various hospitals for quite a while. Ultimately, the doctors just expressed to my parents that, you know, you need to institutionalize her. There's no reason for you to keep up any sort of hope that she'll ever recover. Um, she will never sit up, she'll never talk, she'll never speak, she'll never be able to feed herself again. And that talking thing got me again. My mother told that doctor, she looked him straight in the face, my mother told that doctor, she's been speaking since she came out of the chute, and she's gonna talk again. <laughs> and so the doc doctor just said, well, whatever. To their credit, and I, and I owe my folks an enormous debt of gratitude for not listening and for taking me home we went through endless therapies, endless, not so much medications, but therapies and um, nutrition and wide variety of different things to try to help, not the least of which was prayer. And I did begin to get a little bit better. I didn't, it wasn't quick. It was something that was very slow. I, I began to be able to speak again and start moving my hands, although I could only write with a big, huge crayon for a while. Uh, of course, I was out of school. I was homeschooled, or not homeschooled. Had a home teacher come to me 
for the, for the first and second grades. But somewhere along the line in those first few years, my mother had heard of uh, someone from the church who thought we should see. It, was, it happened to be an Episcopal um, pastor here, actually here in Newport Beach. And she brought me down here to have him lay hands on me. Certainly at that age, I had no concept of what was going on in my world other than this holy man put his hands on my head and just held him there, I felt the most enormous sense of well-being, of comfort, and just peace and tranquility. And I clearly didn't understand what that was all about, but I did experience that. And I look back today and I think, oh, Holy Spirit was alive and well, even in those very early days of my experience. I kind of forgot about that, finally was able to return to school, uh, public school, it was not an easy transition. The school did not want, this was long before mainstreaming of, of kids, school was not happy having someone with a physical disability. By then I was up in the wheelchair and um, going, to, going to classes, but they required that my mother pick me up from school every day at lunch and take me home, and they didn't want any responsibility. And I was so, so happy to be back at school. And I saw myself, my point of view was, all the other children running around and laughing, I saw myself the same way. For some reason, I never saw myself as being in a wheelchair. The kids were sometimes a little mean. They teased me a lot. I mean, I was there to study, I, and I enjoyed school so much, but friends are a very big part, as I find out with our sons, a very big part of, of any child's life. And it was frustrating and sad and hurt me a lot when actually one little girl decided to tip me out of my wheelchair because she didn't like the fact that I was there. And then it really cheesed her when the little fifth grade boys came over and picked me up and put me back in my chair again. My mother shared with me often what I call her pithy aphorisms, her adages like, laugh in the world, laughs with you, crying, you cry alone, um, can't, never did anything. So my mom and dad continued to talk to me about friendships and, and taught me to believe in miracles and to believe that no matter what, God was on my side. By the time I hit uh, junior high school, I was beginning to develop a very, very serious scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. By then, they had determined that the reason I had become a paraplegic was because of a, of a, a condition called transverse myelitis, which is where there's a lesion on the spine. In my case, it was caused by an unknown virus. And it just separates the communication from the brain to the extremities. So because all my muscles had started to atrophy, I was not able to sit up against the force of gravity and developed a, a very severe S-shaped curvature, which I have still. At that time, I ended up in one of those plaster body casts from my neck to my hips, hot, scratchy, smelly, yucky things. But my mother did everything. She made my clothes for me so that they fit, and she'd get scarves for me so I would be as least obnoxious looking as possible in one of those things. Um, ultimately, my dad was able to, to work with a chiropractor to make a removable brace so I could shower, and, and, and it was cleaner, and it was better fitting and such. But this is around the time that my parents really decided that they needed to talk to me about, for a life of independence, uh, from your chair. You need to learn how to prepare yourself for the future. I remember them crying when they talked to me about it, and I'm sort of thinking, I'm not sure why they're crying. Because in the meantime, I've got this voice in my other ear going, no, Marianne, out of all the six-year-olds in the world, I chose you to live your life in a chair. 
And I clearly did not understand the significance at that time. But it was obviously our Lord's voice sharing with me something my parents would, would only see a little bit later. The reality of that situation, of the fact that I needed to become independent, needed to uh, address my life as a possibility of being one from a chair the rest of my life, really made me decide that, well, I'm going to have to do something because it isn't going to be physical. I'm not going to be a dancer. I'm not going to be a, you know, I'm not going to be dancing the hula in some exotic resort. Um, I, need to, <laughs> I need to get smart here. So I prepared myself for college, and off I went to USC, my father's alma mater, my brother's alma mater. And just it was a wonderful experience. I loved college. I wish I had done a little bit better, but nonetheless, as I was preparing to, to, to graduate, as all of the students in the School of Accounting there do, we did our on-campus interviews. And at this time, it was with the, the big eight CPA firms and the middle 12 tier of CPA firms. And I was so excited about going. I wanted to be an auditor, and I wanted to just be out in corporate America and do all that, that stuff. And I kept getting rejections, one after the other, from every one of these CPA firms. I mean, I went through the big eight and into the middle 12, and I was down to the little tiny firms. And, and I, I knew that my grades weren't stellar, but they weren't as bad as a lot of people who were getting these positions. And one night, I got a telephone call at home from a partner of one of the big firms who said, told, told me who he was, and he had interviewed me that day. And he said, you know, I will deny this phone call if you tell anybody what I have said. But he said, I want you to know that I was most taken by your interview today, but we will not be hiring you, and you can count on none of the other firms hiring you for, for, to be a CPA. He said, we're having enough trouble right now introducing women into public accounting as auditors. And he said, to introduce a woman from a wheelchair would be very, very difficult. And he said, I want you to take those words not as, as a disappointment or as a slam, but he said, I'm going to let you in on a little clue. Start out in corporate America in accounting. Work your way up. And when your friends at USC are still cutting, pasting, and attaching CPA, um, you will be earning a far better salary. You'll have much more responsibility. And you'll enjoy your career a lot more. And I'm thinking, this doesn't fit. I had an SC education, you know, and all my friends are going to these big eight firms. But it was what it was, so I proceeded with my career and, and actually enjoyed some very, very exciting early successes. I spent a little time in the real estate industry, um, insurance industry, spent a stint in the film industry, um, and, and settled into the construction-related fields, real estate fields. I was blessed enough to be able to share committees with some people that I were, was able to learn from. and. Ultimately, I was able to, to um, with the help of my folks, buy a house in Pasadena and really start that independent living that I'd wanted to, to experience. They helped me put the house together so it was accessible. They stayed with me for a while as they were preparing a new house for themselves. And now I'm happily living in Pasadena, independent, moving up the corporate ladder, but not real happy. I realized that it wasn't really experiencing much of a spiritual life at all. I hadn't, hadn't been attending church at all, and so I decided, okay, well, I'm going to go out in Pasadena, I'm going to visit every Protestant church there is in Pasadena, and I'll find one that certainly has a good young adults group I can meet men. I really liked what I did for a living, but there was that emptiness there that said, I, I really want to be a wife and a mother. I would sort of go out with people, but I always felt like I was less than desirable, 
And as I moved up financially and in the corporate ladder, I saw myself as becoming less desirable, more qualified, less desirable. Didn't seem to work out. But I was frustrated by, by, by the fact that people had a hard time seeing through my disability. Once again, remember, I'm looking out, so I don't see myself in a chair. I can't understand why people can't see me for who I am. And what it did for me, though, was it made me work harder. I thought, you know, I'm going to make up for the fact that I'm in a chair. I'm going to be whatever, smarter, better, more successful. Whatever. What, what did, did end up happening, incidentally, was that my secretary at the time said, well, why don't you go try that Catholic church in South Pasadena, Holy Family? And they have a great young adult group. You'll meet men there. They're good quality men. I'm thinking, okay, that's good. So I show up for Mass one Sunday morning going, eh, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what these things are, and I don't, I'm not sure why I'm here, and I'm really uncomfortable. So I slipped my chair as inobtrusively into an alcove as I possibly could, as inobtrusively as I can be. Um, and there was a statue there. I thought, oh, who's that lady? And I turned around. And I'm looking at this church, and I'm thinking, look at all these families here. The moms and the dads, the grandparents, all these. And they sing. They sing loud. And they were singing beautifully, beautiful music. And I remember distinctly the first, that, that first mass I attended there, they sang, um, Here I am, Lord, and Be Not Afraid. And I thought, oh, those are nice songs. I'd never heard them before. During the Our Father, all of a sudden, of course, everybody holds hands. And I couldn't figure that out either. Somebody grabbed my hand, and I thought, well, I'll look up and see who's at the end of this hand. I looked up, and it was the most drop-dead gorgeous man I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> my age! And I thought... <laughs> Catholics are good. <laughs> well, I came to find out that Holy Family did not have a single adults group. But in September of that year, I began the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, the RCIA program. And I was confirmed in the church the following Easter. I was 31, and my folks had not endorsed my conversion. Um, it was a very problematic time for us. They didn't understand my, my desire. There had been friction in my father's family, I think, over the Protestant Catholic um, parents. And I attended the Easter vigil alone. My sponsor didn't even make it that night. Not through any fault of hers, but I was all of a sudden just as frightened as I could be about, I just committed to becoming Roman Catholic, and I don't know a thing about this church. And I'm, on one side, I'm, I'm scared to death. On the other side, I had never felt that close to God in my life. Maybe it could have been the Eucharist. I'm betting on that. But at the beginning of that RCIA program, I had started out saying, okay, here I am, Lord. And at that vigil that night, the Lord gently pushed me and said, be not afraid. So it led me into a faith that I have yet to fully comprehend, to fully understand, to fully appreciate, but it was a stepping stone to do where I am and the graces that God has has, and will continue to give me. I then received a, a wonderful opportunity to accept a job here in Orange County, and one of the provisions of that job was that I sell my house in Pasadena and move to Orange County since they didn't want me to commute from uh, Pasadena to Santa Ana. So I, I did that. The, the quid pro quo for that, though, which I thought was a pretty good negotiation, is that they would pay my way through graduate school. 
which is what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, I can sell the house and, and work and still go to graduate school. So I moved to Orange County, Huntington Beach, bought a condo uh, after selling my house in Pasadena, and moved in. And I'm thinking, I'm pretty hot stuff. I got this great job. I'm going to start graduate school. And one night, it hit me like a stone. I was alone. My parents were over an hour and a half away. My brother was two and a half hours away. I had no friends in Orange County. I didn't know what I was doing. There was, I hadn't found a church. And I got desperate. I mean, I really got desperate. Um, I had a, one of those little stair glides in this condo, too. And all of a sudden, I'm trying to get up and down this stair glide. And I've, I'm feeling this sense of acrophobia. I get to the top of the stairs, and I couldn't look down. So I was just obviously being uh, bombarded. So I called the pastor. At, this was at night. It was about 9 o'clock at night. I called the pastor back at Holy Family, and I said, Father, I'm desperate. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Pray for me. Whatever you need to do. He says, oh, Miriam. He says, I have a really good friend. He's an Irish priest. I have a really good friend in, in, in Our Lady Queen of Angels Church in Newport Beach. We went... We're from Ireland. We went to seminary together. He says, you call Father Bill in the morning, and you do whatever Father Bill tells you to do. <laughs> okay. So, so I called Father Bill McLaughlin, uh, pastor, Our Lady Queen of Angels Church. And, and uh, Father says, you come to talk to me this morning. I did. And he said, come to church. Come back to church. You've been away for, for a while since you moved. And I began... Uh, attending Mass at Queen of Angels again, and started attending Mass during the day. I became aware of the Blessed Sacrament, something which had been taught to me, but I didn't quite get the grasp of it. So I started um, sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament, asking for God's to help me discern my vocation. What was it he wanted me to do? Did he want me to to be a wife and a mother, or did he want me to be a single woman? Did he want me to become a religious um, you know, please, God, just answer me. What do you want me to do? Well, it was within weeks that he sent an answer, which was not the question I was asking. But um, it wasn't weeks. It was actually a few years. On um, December 6th of 1994, the County of Orange declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy with the company for which I was CFO as one of the major vendor creditors at the time. They owed us millions of dollars. It was um, a very frightening thing. It was the largest municipal bankruptcy ever to, to occur in the United States. And it was simply the talk of Orange County. I don't know how many of you remember this. But it was the Orange County News Channel did features on the bankruptcy 24-7. And it was, it was kind of got to be a, a lot. My management wanted me to participate enormously in the recovery process. So... I ended up chairing the vendor subcommittee to the master creditors committee. Had no idea what that would entail, uh, but all of a sudden I find myself flying to Sacramento, find, meeting with legislators, taking meetings here, there, and everywhere else. Um, I'm feeling very little with these big corporate law firms in huge conference rooms trying to figure out who's going to get what and from, from whom. And I'm representing a group of 250 vendors, which is a classic classification of the bankruptcy. And these vendors range from being individual cleaning ladies for, for county buildings to major landscapers and major contractors like we were. And there was, it was really s s tough because a lot of these little companies, they couldn't make it 
a week without a paycheck. That's what kept them going. And they were just overwhelmed with the, the magnitude of the bankruptcy and the, and, the, and the frustration of trying to get their money back. So in the meantime, I'm now all of a sudden getting bombarded with phone calls from Orange County News Channel. Could I do this interview? Could I do this, to, could I do this panel? Um, the Wall Street Journal, CNN. I mean, it, our, my office looked like camera trucks passing in and out. And I'm still trying to be CFO to the company and now doing this job as a volunteer. It got nasty. There were some times where the political powers and the people who were representing other constituencies were irritated by the presence of these 250 people that wanted their money and they, they shouldn't have it and it should go elsewhere. So the, the warfare started and it was very, very frustrating, very frightening. I again felt very little trying to help negotiate in the right way. And I just, I was fatigued. I, I felt like I needed a, a center for my f faith, for my prayer life, which I wasn't getting because I was working all the time. And I was finally blessed to be able to uh, contact a spiritual director at the Abbey, at St. Michael's Abbey, and began spiritual direction um, with the Nor a wonderful Norbertine priest there who was very insightful, very helpful in helping me understand how to depend on God in representation fairly, but without being walked all over. And I remember really looking forward to the meetings in really tall buildings because the elevator ride gave me that time I needed to center my focus on God and to be able to open my heart to the Holy Spirit and be able to, to do what I needed to do. As the bankruptcy is winding down now, um, and the recovery is certain for our vendors, and, and they, they were able to recover all of their dollars at 100%. But in the meantime, a very politically active and powerful man who also happened to work for one of our client companies decided that I needed to chair the Government Practices Oversight Committee, which would be reviewing all the operations of the County of Orange, um, discerning whether their operations were um, as efficient in delivering goods and services that they could be, and then we were to write a report, present it to the Board of Supervisors for implementation. And I'm thinking, okay, one more thing I need to do right now. This is not what I wanted to do. But again, it was that opportunity to serve, and I remember having a number of opportunities to be interviewed on, on the Orange County News Channel, and my favorite suit to wear on that was a purple, very, very much purple like you're wearing. But I had a cross that had been given to me by somebody who had visited Rome, the Vatican. And I always wore that cross. And I had a lot of people say, well, what are you doing? I mean, you don't want, to, you don't want people to think that you're Christian or anything. And I, I thought, you know, I'm Catholic. I'm, I am a Christian. And if you don't like it, then don't look at it. But I remember wearing that because it was, it was something that gave me the strength to... To, to move forward with it. As all of that wrapped up, and I went back to one paid position, um, I started waking up in the middle of the night not being able to breathe, and um, ultimately not being able to sleep either. Figured, oh, geez, another doctor visit, which was not my favorite thing to do. Went to the doctor, my general physician said, we need to do some really serious testing because your lung capacity, which was already diminished by the scoliosis, seems to be diminishing precipitously. And you're really having trouble breathing. And I acknowledge that he was right about that. So I began a series of respiratory therapy programs to help me 
regain some of the lung capacity that I had lost through the fatigue of the, the work and the, the demands of the work. Um, I returned to daily communication with our Lord before the Blessed Sacrament and Mass. I started an exercise program again where I actually had a lot of fun learning new adaptive sports like kayaking. I learned how to, to water ski on a sit ski, which was way cool. Riding a bike. Um, I have a bicycle that I ride, which is um, I ride with my hands. And just a wide variety of opportunities. So I'm feeling much better physically, emotionally, spiritually. And um, back in front of the Blessed Sacrament and asking God for my discernment on my vocation, decide, well, I don't think I heard this from the Lord. I think I decided this in my German will. Okay, I don't have an answer, so therefore I'm going to give you the answer, God. I'm going to be a single woman, and I'm going to fix up my condo, and I'm going to have things just the way I like them. I'll proceed with my job, and we'll go from there. <laughs> Remember my dad, my prophetic dad, walking in going, gee, dear, you spent a lot of money fixing up this condo. Are you happy with it? And I said, yeah, I, I, I like what I did with it. It's pretty nice. And he said, yeah, well, it'll be just like you to fix it up, spend all this money, and the next thing you know, your Prince Charming is going to walk through the door. Yes, I met Denny. Yes, I met Denny. <laughs> On May 29th, I remember the date. It was, I was not impressed. I just... <laughs> it's about you, dear. <laughs> a, a wonderful mutual friend of ours. Um, Denny had known this boy, man for a long time. He played softball with him. And uh, I had known him through, through Queen of Angels. He was a part of our, our discernment group. And... Um, I guess he had told Denny that he needed to meet me. I don't know. I wasn't part of that conversation. Our friend Ray had been in Korea teaching English and had come home and said, let's, let's all go out to dinner on Saturday night. I said, fine. I'll meet you guys there after Mass. And I show up, and Ray is standing on one foot and then the other. I mean, he's just like a cat on a hot tin roof. I said, what is the matter with you? And he said, oh, nothing. Nothing's wrong. Why? And I said, uh, oh, he says, well, do you know Denny Shields? And I said, no. Why? Should I know him? Oh, well. You know, he's a pilot for Delta Airlines, and he's, he's a really neat guy. I play softball with him. He's 48 years old, and he's never been married. Thinking, okay, so what do I need that information for? <laughs> and I decided I was going to be single. I didn't need it. So we sit down, eat dinner, and no Denny Shields, and I'm chit-chatting, having fun with my friends. All of a sudden, this guy walks in in kind of scrunchy shorts. It looked like he hadn't shaved. He was late, and... I'm thinking, am I supposed to be impressed with this guy? So he sits down, and we're talking, and our friend says, well, Denny, do you know Marianne has just been representing all these people in the bankruptcy, and the government practice, so yet he looked over and says, Denny says, I know everything there is to know about her. And I thought, you're spending way too much time watching OCN at night, you know? <laughs> Get a life. So... I'm thinking, okay, fine. We go on. I overhear him talking about flying in Vietnam. And I have a passion for military aviation. And as a matter of fact, I have an Air Force officer's guide that's more current than his. Uh, I had it at the time because I was interested. I thought it was very fascinating. So I looked at him and I said, oh, did you fly C-131s? Uh, C-130s. And he looked back at me and he says, no, 141s. And I thought, well, pardon me for a jet engine, you know. But... I thought, what kind of an arrogant guy is this anyway? So at the end of this little dinner, he's handed me his business card. And he said, well, if you ever need me, call. And I'm thinking, 
what I need you for. <laughs> so I threw it in the back of my, my car. And um, months, several months later, it happened to be the 4th of July party. I invited a bunch of people. And somebody said, well, why don't you invite that Denny Shields guy? I said, who's that? And it, oh, that's the guy. So I thought, oh, all right, well, whatever. So I dug in the bottom of the backseat of my car and found his business card and left a message at his office. And I figured, well, if he shows up, fine. If he doesn't, well, he showed up. And he brought halibut, which I thought was, he'd been fishing in Alaska with his parents. It was at that little party I realized, this is an amazing man. I mean, he was not only very kind and polite, but I realized that he was incredibly hardworking, had accomplished a lot in his life, and was a deeply, deeply spiritual man. Over the course of time, uh, we started emailing, and I think that one thing that tipped me over the edge on him was an email he sent me one October um, morning. He had just taken, had returned from a, f a flight from Salt Lake City, Utah, and he had taken off, I guess, early in the morning, and, he, and his email said, you know, I took off from over the Great Salt Lake this morning. They said, the engines were performing with gusto, and who could doubt God's creation looking down at the Great Salt Lake? And I thought, wow, what a guy. I mean, he's writing me this email. Our email history was pretty interesting. So one day, I'm at work, and I get this email that says, well, from him, this is I'm playing golf in the, in the or softball Friday night, and I'm going to play in the Bishop's Golf Tournament on Monday, but I don't have anything to do in the meantime. Got any ideas? Or got any suggestions was the word he used. I'm thinking, what am I, your social director? <laughs> and so... I must have had a funny look on my face because my, my executive assistant, Jan, who's here, came in to me. She said, what's wrong? She, I said, what is this email about? She looked at me and she said, oh, he's asking you out on a date. And I said, really? Where does it say that? <laughs> so, it's about you. <laughs> so it's his, his roundabout Minnesota way, I guess. But um, in, in February, on my birthday, he asked me to marry him. And I'm, I'm talking to my mom a few days later, and I said, you know, Mom, I'm really excited. I love this man. But, you know, he's, he's devoutly Roman Catholic. He's, he's very successful. He's very faith-filled. He's a devout Roman Catholic. But he's 48 years old, and he's never been married. What's wrong with him? <laughs> <laughs> my mother leans over the table and says, well, dear... You're devoutly Roman Catholic. You're very successful. You're independent. You're 44, year old, 44 years old. What's wrong with you? Um, she, she got me on that one. Again. So as we were preparing for our marriage, we talked a lot. I mean, we, we talked a lot about what you, we think you're supposed to talk about before marriage. We talked about finances. We talked about all the things that go along with it. We talked about children, and we began the process of visiting doctors, obstetricians, and gynecologists to see what the possibility of me having children was. And um, the upshot of the deal was actually that while I would be able to bear my own children with the scoliosis and the limited restrictive lung condition, that more likely than not, it would be a death wish for me. Um, at a minimum, it would be eight months worth of bed rest during the pregnancy, and a wonderful uh, Catholic pulmonologist that we met with suggested that um, we, we 
pursue uh, NFP natural family planning and think about adoption. Well, we talked about the adoption. It was interesting because both of us had sort of in our backgrounds in the back of our minds, you know, that's a cool idea. Some kids are out there that don't have a mom and a dad that they need, um, they need somebody. And we both had a passion for Hispanic or, or Philippine children just because we love the, the, the joy in their hearts and such. So we proceeded with our marriage with the expectation and plan of adopting children. Our wedding was just magnificent. Um, Father Joe and four other priests were with us that day. We invited all the angels and saints, and they all came. <laughs> and it was way cool. And uh, Father Bill, who, uh, who was the man that I first talked to when I moved to Orange County, the priest, uh, gave us our, our final uh, wedding vows. And in Denny's infinite style, at the end of our ceremony, he picked me up out of my wheelchair and carried me down the aisle. And um, he sat, as he sat me, he had arranged for a chair at the end of the aisle. He sat me down in the chair. I turned around and looked back up at the altar. And my father, just the look on his face was just jubilant as he pushed the empty wheelchair back down the aisle. It's an image I'll never forget. But uh, uh, several months after we were married, one of, the, one of the priests, a Jesuit, had been a friend of Denise for a while, was writing a book on, uh, called A God of Many Loves. And he asked us both about our image of God and what, what we saw as the face of God. And I tripped over the book the other day, and, and I, I'm just going to read this little. It says, it was not until after Denny and I were married that I finally realized the extent of God's love for me. I have always thought that my friends liked me and knew that my parents loved me. But through the sacrament of marriage, I have become vividly aware that Denny's love for me is never-ending, that he would do anything for me. Incredibly to me, I feel that I am now able to see the face of God in my husband. As I sit next to him, look at him over the, across the dining room table, or watch him sleep at night, I see God's face. I see and know that God exists prominently in Denny for me. And I'm grateful to say that Ten years later, there's no difference in that sentiment at all. He has taught me to laugh. Then he's taught me to live abundantly. He's taught me to play without regret, to rest often, and to pray constantly. Through Denny, I came to know and establish a devotion to Our Lady. Um, in the first few years we were married, we were blessed with the opportunity to travel quite a bit. He took me to Medjugorje, to Lourdes, to Rome, to, to Portugal. We were in Germany and Spain, and we had, a, I mean, just idyllic, fun times together. Um, he taught me to play golf. He got me a golf cart so that I can, can play golf um, from a cart that we can take right up under the greens. And we, we have really, we especially enjoyed those first years together. Not that we don't still enjoy We just don't see each other as much. Um, and about two years after we were married, we started, decided that it was time to start the adoption process. And it, we had no idea what this whole process was going to be like. And it really took a lot longer than we anticipated. We spent nine weeks in a class trying to learn how to parent. We were, um, had to go through all the FBI screenings, the DOJ screenings, of course, and all that. And we had a couple of situations that were presented to us of children that we had hoped might work. They didn't work out for one reason or another. But a very kind and wonderful social worker came to us in December of 2003 and said, well, 
we have two little boys who are brothers, and we, the social worker said, I firmly believe that these two boys are the match for you, and we want you to meet them right away. We want this process to get moving right away. Well, it was December, and in Denny's wisdom, he said, you know, we don't need to disrupt these kids' lives before Christmas. Let them go through Christmas where they are without interruption. They were in foster care, and we'll meet them uh, right after, on January 3rd, actually, right after the first of the year. In the meantime, our dear friend Ray, who had introduced us, was at our place for dinner around Christmas time. And he said, well, how's the adoption process going? And I said, fine. We're going to meet a couple little boys in January. Ray says, well, what are their names? Well, uh, Robert's the oldest boy, and Raymond's the youngest one. And Ray says, really? He said, I don't think you knew this, but my name is Raymond Robert Pellegrini. <laughs> and Raymond Robert, okay. <laughs> so somehow this, these God incidences keep coming in. And then he said, right then, I said, I think this might be a fit this time. So January 3rd, we drove out to San Bernardino County, the far end of San Bernardino County, and met these two little guys. They were in foster care with a family. We learned that it was where they were at that time was the 13th placement for our oldest boy and the 11th placement for our younger. They had been shifted from shelter to birth home, birth parent, to shelter, to foster, from foster to foster to foster. They were separated on occasion. The boys were, are only 10 months apart in age, so they're very, very close. Um, we love those kids. I mean, they're just, the minute we saw them, they were just bundles of energy, cute as could be. They were four and five at the time. And we realized what a rat's nest they were in. And it was just heart-wrenching to see what they had been through and where they were at the time. We were not given a great deal of information about them. We didn't have back, um, the medical records at the time. We didn't have any background to speak of, except that we knew they'd been in a number of placements. And we knew they both had very strong personalities. The process requires them to come for visits, stay overnight. And then ultimately, in February, they came to live with us for the six-month uh, foster period of time. And Distinctly remember, they moved in on a Thursday. Friday, Denny took off in the morning for a four-day Delta trip. It rained all weekend. I had been looking forward to the van coming from social services, which was going to bring all their toys and things that they had accumulated through these 13 placements everywhere. The van arrived, and all of a sudden, our little family room was filled with dirty, torn blankets, stuffed animals with stuffing coming out of them everywhere, toys, most of which were broken and not cared for, and the house turned into pandemonium. Pandemonium. My parents offered to come spend the weekend with us, or with me, to help me with the boys, and I'm thinking, okay, I have a van that I'm renting right now which was not easy to get in and out. The ramp didn't work very well. These two little kids, both flight risks, and I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what to do. And they're running on the, I mean, they're literally running on top of the furniture. My father, God bless my father, he, after about four hours, he looked at me and he says, Marion, I gotta go home. I <laughs> 
I can't take this. And through the weekend, Denny would call me from his layover hotel every night, and I'd be, the kids would finally be in bed, and I'd just cry. And he's, he's I know he prayed the rest of the night for me because we got through the weekend by God's grace, and I remember getting to church that Sunday morning, couldn't get the garage door to close, couldn't find the shoes, and, you know, the kids by then didn't have proper, they had church clothes, but they were sort of mismatched. Finally got them to church, sat down in the pew right after the father had walked in and just burst into tears. But over time, um, we learned more about the children. Um, the, they were very, very, very challenged, very, very hurt little boys. And they had never known any boundaries. There was no sense of, of there was no sense of love or family for either of them. They couldn't figure out why they were being moved again. They knew that, they felt anyway, that if they misbehave or, or act out, they'd just get moved to a house that was easier, at least for a period of time, that little grace period, that honeymoon period when they'd move. With time, we were able to settle them down and prepare them enough to enter school. They had not had a lot of early, early education. Uh, our older son was prepared for kindergarten, we felt. And by God's grace, he was accepted at St. Bonaventure School, which has turned out to be a wonderful place for our sons. Um, the little one had a ways to go as far as developing his skills and, and, and being prepared. They started school, and then all of a sudden in October, we got a notification that we had a hearing date for the finalization of the adoption. And four days before the hearing, we got their medical records and all the details about their past. And it was overwhelming. It was really overwhelming. They were not particularly excited about the finalization. They didn't really know what it was going to be about. And they didn't know exactly whether that was what was in their best interest from their point of view or not. And um, so they were scared. But we drove to the, to the courthouse on October 13th in 2004 to have, for the finalization hearing. A few days later, it dawned on us that Five years to the day before that hearing, on October 13th in 1999, Denny and I had received a personal blessing from our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II. Exactly five years to the date. God incidents, I think. The boys are really thriving now, and we're just having a wonderful time being parents. We love praying with them and playing with them, and they're developing little senses of humor, and they're studying hard. They're both doing well. Um, and as I look back and I think how wonderfully happy I am, how blessed my life is, I continue to pray for the strength and the longevity to see these boys into adulthood. Like everyone, I continue to struggle with the awareness of my less-than body, and each day I come before God and ask Him for the grace of getting through. A couple weeks ago, I was... I was praying the Sorrowful Mysteries, and I thought, you know, Lord, I, when I think about the collateral suffering that goes along with me, the suffering that Denny experiences to a certain extent, certainly the suffering my parents experienced when I was a child, the, the little sufferings that our boys experience when I don't run with them or can't do what they want me to do, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm anxious about this, and, and I sort of anguish over it, but... What about our Lord at Gethsemane when he's sitting there going, 
you know what, if this didn't have to happen, it might be okay. And I think about, well, Lord, don't let anything else happen. I can't see these boys to their, to their adulthood. But I think, gosh, our Lord suffered so much during that time too. And then as I, I did deal with on occasion of the pain of my brace not fitting well or soreness or just not, not feeling very well, I think about that suffering he had as they scourged him. The humiliation that I experience sometimes when I find myself on the floor of the airport because I hit a rung going too fast and my luggage is everywhere and I'm on the floor and, or I slip as I transfer from my wheelchair to the seat where the hairdresser is going to cut my, my hair or something humiliating happens. I, I have to think about our Lord when they put the crown of thorns on him and teased him and said, yeah, made a mockery of him. And then again, when I'm tired at the end of the day, physically exhausted from transferring in and out of the car 15 or 20 times and not getting sleep because somebody needs homework worked on or whatever. I think again about Jesus and his, his, the fatigue he must have experienced as he carried that cross up to, up to Calvary. And as I ultimately fear still a little bit, a, a cross I bear right now, fear a little bit the anxiety over death, I think, it just came to me all of a sudden that, you know, our Lord died on that cross. And as I see Jesus on that cross and realize that it is only because of that cross that we can find hope. If there hadn't been that cross, there wouldn't have been that hope of the resurrection. And in that hope is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which that first Peter reading was about. Um, at the Intercessor of the Lamb Conference in Omaha this past July, Mother Dandine was speaking, and she used a, a quote out of Romans 5. I had never heard this before, and I don't know where I was when I read Romans, but I'd never heard this, this verses 4 and 5. I'm going to read them to you. It says, Knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. I'm going to read that one more time because I really want you to think to, to hear this again. Knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has given, been given to us. That's it. That's it. Hope. Affliction or suffering that we all experience always leads to hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is that miracle that we should all be longing for. It is embracing the cross with Christ that we are given access to the suffering that leads to hope. You see, my brothers and sisters, um, it is my belief to the core of my being that God had personally selected me to serve him, to be an example of his love, and to teach others through living a hope-filled life. It seems to me that what God wants me to convey to others is much more powerful doing it from a wheelchair than it is if I were a walking person. What God shared with me as a six-year-old for me to understand only later as an adult is that I have a personal responsibility to live my life from a wheelchair for the absolute glory of God. 
In exchange for taking that responsibility, he has poured out his love into my heart through the Holy Spirit. Well, we certainly hope you have enjoyed Mary Ann Shields. And for more information or a copy of today's broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. Once again, Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, zip code 92859. And for some of you, it might be easier to call. So feel free to call us at 800-500-4556. If you would like to have more information about the Magnificat ministry, including a location of a Magnificat chapter in your area, you can call 504-828-MARY. That's 504-828-MARY. Or visit the Magnificat website at www.magnificat-ministry.org. On behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Remember, Magnificat proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in his peace. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.